machine learning has improved both in tools and in accessibility. Frameworks like TensorFlow create the right abstractions for developers to work efficiently. Educational programs like Metis and Insight Data Science provide a place for developers to learn these tools. As a result, artificial intelligence is becoming easier to develop and more widespread. Rahman Chowdhury works on artificial intelligence at Accenture. Before her current role, she taught data science at Metis. In this episode, we talk about the current state of artificial intelligence, from the tools available to the long-term implications, such as the robot tax recently proposed by Bill Gates. This is an enjoyable and wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Ramon Chowdhury works on artificial intelligence at Accenture. Ramon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. In the last few years, we've seen machine learning technology improve both in quality and in accessibility. Let's talk about the improving quality of technology first. How has the workflow of a data scientist or a machine learning programmer gotten easier in the last five years? That's a really interesting question. So I feel like quality and accessibility almost go hand in hand because there's so much open source out there and free tools to train yourself on different models and techniques. And we can move a lot faster. It has improved the quality because when you come into a project, you're not starting from scratch. You have a ton of resources available on the internet, if not on your own team. Um, so I think there's a few things happening here. One, we have more tools available to us even before we become a data scientist. So we enter our data science jobs better armed. Two, um, data science has matured more as a field. So instead of coming in and being one of the first data scientists or the first data scientist, you now have a team to rely on. And there's a lot to be said about seniority, even if you know the person's only been there two years ahead of you. So I think there's a, a few things happening here. So there are a number of trends, there are a number of tools that are improving things, but data cleaning, as I understand, is still a persistent problem. This is a problem that's been confounding data scientists for as long as we've had data science. Is data cleaning going to become easier, or is this something that is always going to be a challenge for data scientists? I see both ends of it. So I'll give you a bit of insight. Right now I'm on a project that requires the annotation of scientific documents. And there is no machine way to do that. So literally right now I am sourcing about 10 analysts for about 500 hours of work. And you know I've apologized to them profusely because they're about to spend the next 500 hours downloading articles off of Elsevier and JSTOR and tagging them into a spreadsheet or some sort of a, a, a file. Um, so that part of it will never go away. So data cleaning specifically, I think, will improve greatly. And this is where AI comes in. There are some really fascinating tools out there. One that I've seen uh, that's taking off in more complex data sets and dealing with multidimensionality there are applications where they're using topographical mapping, um, and and you can, if you imagine mapping your data set on multiple dimensions, the way a map looks. So add that to VR technology. Now we're seeing the capability to literally walk into your data set. So you put on a VR headset, 
you have your topographical mapping of your data, you are seeing your data points in multi, in, in three dimensions, and then you can look over there and say, oh, what is that outlier? Literally touch the outlier, see what the point is, or turn your data around to see it from a different perspective. So it's, and all of this sounds like magical, you know, story time, but I promise you these are things that exist or will exist in the very near future. Is something like that practical that I can imagine somebody trying to sell me that at the Consumer Electronics Expo or something? It's just like one of those like vaporware sort of things that's not right, actually right. useful. But you, but as a data scientist, you can imagine actually using that and it being useful? I think it'd be very useful to be able to visualize your data. There's something very compelling about a good visual in spotting outliers. It's actually something I focused on quite a bit. Um, as scientists, and, and I suffer from the same thing, we approach visuals as, you know, you slap together a bar chart at the end of your analysis, right? Um, since being exposed to D3, I've gotten really an education on good visuals and how they can change your outcome or how they can change how you perceive your data or, or how they can give you insights you couldn't just by you know, running analyses on your data. So I absolutely think it could be useful. So yes, that is a very scalable solution at maybe a bigger company or a company that is very deep in, you know, outlier detection or data analysis. But for the average data scientist, I think data cleaning will become easier for many reasons. Um, one, we have more people coming into data science, so more hands are touching data. Two, one problem I saw in my earliest data science job is that we hadn't we as uh, like a as tech had only thought of data in terms of storage not usage so we had tons and tons of data you know we had 10 years of historical data but they were all web logs and they were just sort of stored um not in a not easily accessible format you had to put on a, a, a you know hdfs system on top of that and even then it wasn't, um, literally the data was not structured in a way that made it easier understandable. I think we're moving past that. So we're getting more savvy on how we store our data. So data science 1.0 is all about big data. And, you know, literally people would ask how much data you had. And we quickly came to realize that it was absolutely meaningless <laughs> if you could not get good quality results out of your data. So now there's more of a focus on data quality and accessibility. So I, I think data cleaning will improve frankly, because there will be less cleaning to do. Have you seen any interesting initiatives around open data sets? I had a conversation with Oren Hoffman a while ago. He's working on a company called SafeGraph, and their goal is to make data sets more open and accessible and safe and perhaps anonymized in cases where it needs to be anonymized. How, how big of a potential opportunity is this? I think it reduces barriers significantly to have data sets accessible to different people. Kaggle has done a lot for helping data scientists from non-traditional backgrounds shine, and that is based on having these data sets provided to them that do, frankly, very interesting things like detecting a, a seizure based on MRI scans. Like how fascinating is that? Um, so I think the open data movement is critical to a field like data science where people can come from all different backgrounds and as a result, it's hard to identify a good data scientist. So how do you do that? You you have to build a portfolio of projects. You can only do it if you have good data. Um, one thing I will touch on, so part of the work I do at Accenture is on responsible and ethical, 
responsible and ethical AI. So I'm really focused on what you just mentioned, anonymizing data, but it's more than just anonymizing. You can use data sets in many different ways to identify people. Another part of having open data, which again, I'm all for, is making sure it's representative of the sample you are trying to talk about. So, you know, not to start driving into the whole, you know, biased algorithms thing, but we do see outcomes that, you know, are subject to all the ism, sexism, racism, and that's because the data it's trained on isn't adequately representative. So for example, uh, there was one to determine, you know, the outcome of a beauty pageant. And because it had only been trained on Western ideals of beauty, it tagged all the white women as beautiful, well, not all of them, but people who are traditionally Western and white looking as beautiful and darker skinned women as not beautiful. And that's just a flaw in your data. That doesn't mean your algorithm hates black people. It just is a flaw in your data and needs to be either recognized or addressed in open data. What's a typical strategy for how a company develops a model in-house in maybe the research section of the company and then deploys it? Because this is a, 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 a problem or an opportunity, depending on how you look at it, that I've heard quite often is you have a data scientist who is hacking around on a data set and they're trying to solve a particular problem, like uh, let's build a better model for how we serve ads to people, for example. And then they'll build the model in-house as a research project. And then and then once they're ready to say, okay, this, this is something we need to deploy, it's kind of in a state where it's not easily deployable. Like maybe they wrote it in a, in a particular language where or they're using static data and it's not straightforward how to deploy it. Have you seen this as an issue and how have you seen it be solved? Actually, at my first job, that's what that is a model I built. You just mentioned targeted media. So I worked for a company called Quotient, and um, my team won an award at Strata Hadoop for a micro targeted media model that we developed. And it was very cool. We used um, shopper behavior, um, you know, from the way people shopped at places like Safeway and Walgreens um, and other companies to identify an individual and target them with literally the things that we thought they would buy. And it was more than just, oh, you've bought these complimentary goods. It was taking into account things like product life cycle. So for example, you tend to buy laundry detergent every six weeks. If I knew you bought laundry detergent five weeks ago, guess what I'm tagging, targeting you with, right? Um, and then also for maybe dryer sheets as well. So I have experience in that. Um, it, so back then I was programming more in R. Now I do more Python. Um, agreed, that's not easily translatable. I think tools like Spark really help dealing with streaming data. So the, a big consideration I had to have was latency of my model, data accessibility, um, and how well it would translate to scale, which were not considerations I've ever had to do. My background, uh, my PhD is in political science. I'm a quantitative social scientist. But all the data I've ever used, even if it was in uh, a lot of data, never had to programmatically be scaled. I was just worried about a one-time output. So it's a different mindset when you have to consider streaming data, as you mentioned. You have to worry about the latency of your model, and then you have to really get clean and precise about having efficient code. 
um, which was not something I was accustomed to doing. One thing I will add is that I know it's very popular to want to do everything in real time and streaming data, but it is worth a consideration on what the value add is versus the amount of work necessary to be able to handle streaming data. You may not need it. So, you know, you might have an example which maybe day old data would be absolutely fine and much easier to access than trying to get live streaming data. So it's it's worth it to take a step back and think about all of your options before just diving into the coolest Spark solution. That's a really pragmatic statement to make. Can you help us generalize that? What are the cases where a batch procedure is good enough? So that's that's a really good question. I think if customers are doing a lot of actions on your interface, so, you know, let's say we're talking about a website. If you can just base your recommendations on what similar customers are doing within the last, let's say, 24 hours, maybe it's for you know shopping. You might be able to get away with not using streaming data and you can use customer preferences within the last 24 hours. If you're trying to do something maybe like weather prediction or something where uh, the person needs the answer at the moment and you want it to be curated and customized and you might lose people as a result. So maybe streaming music or streaming media, you probably want that to be real time. I need to know what you just listened to, to know what you want to listen to next or what else I should recommend to you. But something honestly, and you know, maybe I'm wrong in my perception, but most brick and mortar translations to web, like, so for example, stores could probably do with just, with not having to go the streaming route. When you talk about the diff in uh, how hard it is to implement batch versus streaming, why why is that so hard? Because I think of a streaming data set as, you know, you just get one example at a time coming in. You've just got to, you know, run that through your system versus batch. You just have that running once per day where you have all of your examples. Explain why streaming is harder. Streaming is only harder because most companies, especially ones outside of Silicon Valley and especially ones that are trying to scale solutions, are not equipped in terms of hardware and software to do it. I think we're a little bit spoiled in Silicon Valley in that we're used to these small companies that just jump right in and invest in Spark from the get-go. But if you are an older company that has had data stored for many years and you know you had an Atiza system and that's how you used to access your data, you're coming on board with data science um, maybe in the last five years, there's a lot of sausage making that happens in the back and it's it's not it's not always very pretty. Um, so the difficulty really often lies with the solutions you have at hand and not all companies, in fact, most companies are not yet there to deal with streaming data cleanly. That being said, the the adoption rate is, you know, exponential. So companies are moving ridiculously fast. And I'm frankly impressed at global companies and their willingness to adopt things like open source tools um, and invest in tools and programs that are only a few years old. That's not the norm with big companies. Can you explain more about what is going on in the inner workings of those big companies? 
the whether we're talking about the quote unquote AI strategy that a big company might be adopting or just maybe the conversations that a CTO is having in terms of okay, we need these new technologies, these specific new technologies, maybe not with a broad, overarching, ambitious artificial intelligence strategy, but just you know piecemeal technologies. Talk about how these conversations are going on in the big companies. Yeah. Um, so if we think of somebody at a CEO or CTO level, they're not a kid fresh out of college. So while younger people, um, we might all get excited, we might all buy in fully with AI, these people have seen so many technological quote-unquote revolutions. And by the way, I fully believe that this is the AI revolution is a technological revolution. But from the perspective of maybe a CEO sitting in Texas or you know, not in the heart of Silicon Valley, they've heard this spiel before. They heard it about SAP. They heard it about Web 1.0. So they're here. They're like, all right, you know, we see it's doing stuff, but you know, it's very, what can it do for me? And will it actually revolutionize? The other thing I've seen, and this is true of data of uh, people implementing data science in general, it's almost scary to dream that big. Um, one thing I used to do at my first data science job is talk to our strategy and insights folks who are not quantitative and ask them just for their wish list. I'm like, give me your ridiculous wish list. That's actually how the micro-targeting project was born. The, we people are not even sure of what the potential is. So you know, and like I said, uh, people at the C level they've they've heard this conversation. They get pitched, you know, the next you know the best thing since sliced bread quite often. Part of it is um, getting them on board with uh, understanding and appreciating the AI and data science revolution. I think they are starting to see it. There are some really great industry examples that people look at. Tesla's one, Uber's another. Um, Interestingly, I just bought a car, uh, well, and uh, it's like the most tech car I've ever owned. And frankly, like you don't, I don't even need keys. You know, I just like put my hand on the door and it opens and then it knows who I am and it does all Did the you things. get a Tesla? No, I didn't get a Tesla. I got a, ah. um, I, I got a BM, well, I don't have a good way of charging a car where I am. So I got oh, a hybrid. Okay. Yeah. So I have a BMW, what is it? I-330. Yeah, I-330. I'm, I'm really not a car person. It's kind of hilarious. I'm just so I'm just like, I want a hybrid. I want a car that has tech in it, you know. Anyway, so we, I totally digressed. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, implementing AI. Um, so like I was saying, it, it's hard for CTOs to see the magic that we see on the ground. They're really high level. They get pitched, you know, these impossible dreams all the time. And part of my job is to help them understand that this is the real deal. AI is going to transform the economy of just about every industry, even if it's an industry you wouldn't think of, even if it's an old industry. And, you know, we I often refer to Tesla and car companies as a really good example. It was previously impossible for a company to come out of nowhere and totally upend the car industry. It just it just didn't happen. And all the German car manufacturers were pretty much caught snoozing while Elon Musk came in with Tesla and dominated the electric car market. It is funny seeing the term artificial intelligence really start to enter the public vernacular. And even more recently, we're really starting to see people talk about 
what we do about automation in more practical terms. We see Bill Gates talking about a robot tax, for example. Um, are these conversations permeating the less technologically literate companies? I mean, you take a company like maybe a big insurance company or a big CPG company. Do they get that? I mean, I guess if you're having these conversations with them about like, look, AI is not just like a hyped thing. It's this is a term that we're going to that we're using to define the output of machine learning processes once they are put in place and deployed and are assisting you in a in a measurable fashion do these companies believe it and and do they convey that throughout their company or is it still just small pockets within the company and then the rest of the company doesn't really get it yeah, that's uh, so. I, that's an excellent question. That's one of the things um, we're working on. We do something called a maturity assessment, and a large part of that is understanding if your company is even ready to implement AI. So your CTO could be all about it, but if we don't have good management, and I call them doers, if you don't have the doers in place, you can have all the pipe dreams you want. Things won't happen. So it is absolutely key to get everybody in the company on board, at least key leadership roles who will be implementing projects, who will understand it. So there's, there's a lot of different levels. Right now, I think most people are at, are at a very nascent level where they are starting to do something called RPA, robotic process automation. Um, so that's things like robots that unpack boxes, um, who do very, very manual tasks. Um, we need to move that forward, but that's not that's not AI. AI would be something like, um, you know, it can algorithmically determine the most efficient way to pack a box uh, by itself and then go pack said box. So and, and then it'll learn from, you know, all this all this information that's provided to it about where things are stored and kept and how much stock is left, et cetera. That's when AI starts to come in. Um, so I agree there needs to be, there's different levels of, you know, hardware, data, computing ability, and also just psychological readiness. So that goes into the second part you mentioned about this whole Bill Gates tax thing. So this is where I put my political science hat on. So let's say we want to have a tax on robots. Right now we tax based on a person, right? So we pay, let's say, an income tax. But that's not, uh, so because I'm also a data scientist, I want things quantifiable. So what are we doing then if we're taxing a robot? Are we making some sort of robot to human conversion rate? So how many people does this robot equal and charging accordingly? Let's say you have a robot. So one algorithm, like I said, that determines the optimal path to pack a box. And there is a robotic arm that packs boxes. Is that one robot or two? But let's say that one algorithm controls 100 robotic arms. Is that 101 robots or is that one robot? So I have problems with how one would quantify robots. And what it boils down to, which is a really interesting thing, so one of my roles at Accenture is we're trying to understand as part of the responsible ethical AI is the human psyche and psychology in creating a world that is integrated with artificial intelligence. And part of that understanding is realizing how self-absorbed human beings are. When we imagine robots replacing humans, we literally think that it will look like the factory of today, but just with robots standing there instead of humans. That is not even remotely what it's going to look like. And we don't even think about things like scaling and productivity. So back to the tax example. So if we are creating this robot to human conversion rate and taxing appropriately, 
doesn't that mean that we're going to tax companies a lot because a robot can probably do the work of 5, 10, 15 people 24 hours a day? So it's, you know, maybe a better measurement is productivity level, not literally number of robots, right? Or or some, or like doing some sort of a conversion. So it gets, it's tricky. I, I think it's a little bit of a naive approach um, and it reflects our human self-absorption as animals. We, we just, we think we're the center of everything. We've designed everything to be, you know, uh, about us, right? So what does it now mean not to get overly philosophical, what does it now mean that we have these machines that can mimic how we think, but also move faster, never have to sleep, you know, they don't have family responsibilities? How does that make us feel when interacting with such a machine? Yeah, I when when Bill Gates was talking about this robot tax, like, oh, because a robot automates what a warehouse worker did, we have to start taxing the robot at a rate that the human would be you know somewhat equivalent to compensate that lost human availability it's so dubious to me because okay bill why didn't you tax yourself when you uh made email widespread and uh and you know prevented the the mail boy or the mail girl in uh in the mail room at at a at a business back in the day from having a job anymore why didn't you tax yourself on that it's just it just it feels like a really weird slippery slope and that's why i'm you know i'm surprised that he would say that instead of i mean maybe it's a more realistic way of looking at things than basic income i guess it i mean from you keeping on your political science hat do you think is that a reasonable way because i think the basic income stuff has been the most compelling to me from a logical perspective but from a political perspective even just that term basic income it sounds like it's it is going to have zero velocity in uh making it through our political system yeah i mean i don't i think it would never make it through our current political system and it wouldn't make it through most of our political systems not to just blame the current administration and political system um but i i don't know what he was trying to get maybe he was just trying to address this fear people have of robots replacing jobs and you know us not being able to catch up, and, and there is a lot of fear. Um, but I think, and again, I, I was using the word naive. It's it's a very human centric view of what AI means. What I see it meaning is making boring tasks automated so that the human being can now do more interesting things. So I can give you an example from um, some of the work we're doing, uh, some of the work I'm actually doing with our corporate citizenship group. So we have a nonprofit and they provide reskilling tutorials and methods for people who are trying to get to move from a more manual job that will be replaced by AI to a more technical job or a role that will be more insulated. So as as they are trying to reskill, they get a job coach. So this is a human being. And the program is wildly successful, but they're having problems scaling because to scale, they literally need more bodies. This is not a hardware or software solution. This is a we need to hire more people solution. So how can AI help if we build an interview chatbot that is uh, that uses a really good machine learning algorithm in the background and it learns from all of its interactions? Not only can it do the interview process better than a human being could because it learns from globally every interview 
that it gives with anybody, but it also frees up that job coach to do other things, maybe focus on um, interview skills or, you know, resume or just jitters or nerves or, you know, talking them through, or maybe they can, you know, the person can graduate and get a job with fewer one-on-one sessions. And then that person can see, the job coach can see more people. So, you know, there is this very zero-sum game view of what AI means. It's either me or the robot, you know, but I really see it as more symbiotic that the robots will free up a lot of tasks that would make our lives more interesting, right? I mean, it's funny when you watch, you know, shows that take place in the 50s and you're like, oh my God, they're just sitting there like on a train going from like, I don't know, New York to Philadelphia. This is going to take forever. And, And we think how great society is now because things are more efficient, right? I don't have to wait to order a pair of shoes and get it in five to seven days. Amazon sends me or Zappos will send it to me tomorrow. I think it's fabulous. And yet we're approaching this AI efficiency improvement with fear and skepticism. So it, it's it's an interesting balance. I think it part of it is um, a misperception and the marketing of it or the the framing of it as a zero-sum game that needs to be dispelled. This is Software Engineering Daily, so we should talk a little bit about engineering. The excitement around TensorFlow is palpable. This seems to be the machine learning framework that is an analog to perhaps React JS on the on the JavaScript. Java. This is the worst analogy I've ever made. But um, in terms in terms of the network effect of of how many people are getting involved with this, uh, together with the big company marshalling all this energy behind it, TensorFlow is somewhat analogous to to an open source project like React that is backed by Facebook. Um, and Google uses it massively internally. What are the big appeals of TensorFlow? I mean, I was just at the TensorFlow Dev Summit, and it, there, there was so m- everybody there was just super smart and like clearly cutting like on a, a cutting edge person. Um, so why is there so much excitement behind TensorFlow? What does it do right? So the excitement behind TensorFlow lies in the fact that it implements neural nets. Neural nets really is what makes AI possible, and that's what everybody is excited about. TensorFlow provides a very, very easy to implement and use. Uh, it's just a really a, a method that's really easy to use and implement to uh, start to get started with and develop more sophisticated neural nets. So going back to our question earlier about, you know, streaming data and is it difficult? And I was talking about how we have these like investments and technologies and it's hard to move. TensorFlow just pretty much cuts through all of that, right? So it's, it can be all in the cloud. Your data can be streaming. Your data can be in the cloud. You can spin up an instance in minutes. I've taught TensorFlow tutorials where students came in and said, oh, I forgot to, install TensorFlow, you can do it on your home computer, which is fascinating, right? Just to be able to to wield something with such power from your home computer. And I can get you from not having it installed to running your basic, you know, neural net in 15 minutes is revolutionary. It's also um, because of TensorBoard, it's easier to visualize, to explain to people who are not technical. I think one very key hurdle that TensorFlow overcomes is the translation from a more engineering data scientist crowd 
to a, a more business-focused crowd or somebody who needs to put something into a PowerPoint deck. A lot of data science is taking your engineering skills and translating it for people who are not data savvy. TensorFlow is an excellent, very approachable way of doing that. What about the opportunities for managed machine learning services? So Google's cloud machine learning is sort of a managed version of TensorFlow. The main opportunities I hear around that are the auto-scaling, but I can imagine other things. So like you talked about TensorBoard essentially being this, uh, it sounds like a dashboard for data scientists to work with or you know or m- maybe people who are more on the business side what what are the opportunities around a hosted service for machine learning so there are more and more of those platforms coming out. Um, I have students working at some of the biggest tech companies who tell me that they don't code anymore as data scientists, that, that nobody there codes unless you are a pure PhD research scientist who's building the things like TensorFlow. And what that does is democratize data science, um, which has both its pros and cons. So the The visualization, I think, is really useful. There are also, going back to our question about data cleaning, there are also tools out there that help you explore your data. What that means is, you know, um, just do quick, you know, uh, cross sections of your data, map it by time, you know, find anomalies just by visualizing your data in all these different ways. Um, And that's translating more and more into machine learning. So I say it has pros and cons for two reasons. Data science is not just about running a code and hitting enter. There's so much thoughtfulness that needs to go into it. And I'm not saying that you need to have a PhD or that you need to have this super sophisticated background in math. But at the very least, you need to understand what is going into your model, whether this is the best model for the data you're using, for the question you have. And this is a very human part where, again, I think AI is not going to replace people machines and algorithms and computers do not understand context. So key to being a data scientist is not just making good code, but implementing it in the real world. And the real world is a messy place. So unless you have context to understand the real world that your algorithm will be applied into and be able to adjust your algorithm accordingly, you won't be successful. So I always say that the the film, you know, uh, engineers use Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. The thing that's worse than Geigo, at least you know it's garbage, right? Only thing worse than that is like you have no idea what you're doing and it goes in, and then something reasonable looking comes out, and you know you're like, oh, I have 98% accuracy, and you sort of run with it, and <laughs> and this this absolutely happens. Um, I've taught enough uh, data science to know that, and actually even even in, in my poli-sci program, the first thing everybody wants to do is make what I call a kitchen sink model and just like everything, like, you know, the size of my shoe and what the weather was yesterday and that affects the stock markets next week, right? Um, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it, it's true that there there is this desire to do that and you overcomplicate um, because there's so much thoughtfulness. So while I like the idea that you don't necessarily have to be an, a, a very advanced programmer to implement data science. I worry that making it easier and easier will make people make naive uh, solutions that aren't suited for their needs. We just had Zed Inam on the show who wrote an article that you may have read called Why Machine Learning is Hard. 
and he talked about all these different axes for debugging a machine learning model that exist, whether you're talking about data cleaning or accuracy or any of these other axes, because getting a machine learning model right is sort of a subjective problem. Does, is it good enough? Maybe it's good enough. Maybe it's not good enough. It's not this binary, either it works or it doesn't thing that you have in a lot of web apps. And I can imagine a world in the not-too-distant future where we've got all these machine learning models sitting around doing work at a company, and they're good enough, but nobody really knows how they work. They're just this black box that's, you know, somebody developed five years ago, and then, eh, you know, we don't really know how it works. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, I don't know. Is that a plausible future to you? The next step in what's going to happen with AI, especially as it starts to touch other industries and starts to be more than just fun toys for tech people, is government is going to get involved. Um, And it will have to because AI will touch things like industries that have unions and unions may push back. Um, And then the government will have to get involved. So the EU is already passing regulation uh, they're way ahead of of the U.S. in passing regulation about data privacy, data security, and it is not long before we start talking and start implementing actionable solutions to creating explainable AI. So uh, AIIII conference was, uh, I think, last week, and um, this group at MIT released, um, you know, a, a a black, a typically black box algorithm that was more explainable. So it would sort of tell you intermediate steps. Um, and, you know, that's something I've seen a lot of being worked on. And whoever is able to crack that will open up the use of AI into so many industries. And there are also some industries in which you literally cannot use black model, black box models legally. Um, so I think of finance as one of them. You cannot use a black box model. And black box is defined very broadly for them. Um, you cannot use black box models to d- do things like credit risk analysis, um, to you know offer you know to to make uh, set interest rates or make offers to people. They they need their models to be fully explainable. So it is already legally regulated against, and the key is to open it up. So I think it's something that companies are thinking about, which is I guess maybe an upside to all the AI fear mongering that's going on. <laughs> didn't realize that you could not make a black box model in finance. Um, and that sounds like over-regulation to me. Um, I don't know. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, I, I would love to hear your opinions about that a little bit more. And then maybe we can go into the AI risk stuff. Um, do you think that, I mean, it seems like a, a black box model for, for credit risk is, should be fine. I mean, certainly... It would uh, have some discriminatory. You could, you have the potential for discriminatory based on race stuff uh, occurring, but those would be missed opportunities that somebody else could pick up. This seems like a problem that the market would solve for. Um, do you think that type of regulation deserves to be in place? I absolutely think it does. It's not very. It's not that easy to start a bank and give people loans. Um, if you are talking about some of the largest banks in the country deny, systematically denying African Americans or recent immigrants loans based on a model that they themselves cannot explain, 
um, I think that's that's a problem because human agency plays a huge a huge role, um, and you know so that was the crux of you know uh, weapons of math destruction, Kathy O'Neill's book that was a big hit last year. Um, I have my feelings on the way we talk about these kinds of things, biased algorithms, et cetera. But to, to touch on your, whether regulation is needed or not, I think so. Yes. It's, you know, we don't have zero barriers to entry in some of these markets and finance is a really good example. While there is some disruption happening in finance, uh, with a lot of these smaller startups that are doing things like creating your credit score, uh, based on potential rather than your history, um, they're not market dominant. Um, and you worry about people not being able to do things like get a basic credit card uh, because of some algorithm that is purely black box and cannot explain its own reasoning. Okay, you touched on the AI risk question. What's your perspective on that? How far are we from general artificial intelligence? And are we close enough to start thinking about how we prevent the general AI from turning us all into paper clips. I was I was waiting for you to drop the S bomb singularity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is this gonna be a singularity question? All right, so this is where I rub my hands together um and put my poli sci hat back on. Um I think that and it's an important distinction and while it may sound like semantics, it's not semantics. Are Word choice when we talk about things like biased algorithms is very important. So a biased algorithm to a statistics person means something very, very specific. That is not what we talk about when people, when the lay person talks about a biased algorithm, they talk about an algorithm having all the isms. That's not what it means in uh, mathematically for an algorithm to be biased. So using the lay person explanation. So I, I think that's how it started because stats speak, we will say this algorithm is biased to the layperson ear. We understand bias to mean something different. And that's how all this talk of biased algorithms started. Now, algorithms are not alive. They are not, they do not have free will. They do not do things that we have not told them to do. So by using the term biased algorithm in the sense that it's implementing isms, we are removing human agency from the equation. We're, by using those words, we're acting as if it's the algorithm's fault and not the person's fault, which is why I think there should be regulation on things like black box algorithms, because at the end of the day, it's the person or the company implementing the solutions to the algorithm and the people creating the algorithm, not the algorithm itself that is at fault. And that's that's really important, um, even though, like I said, it may sound like semantics, because I think that is what's driving a lot of our fear of AI, because we're already starting to talk about algorithms as if they are alive, as if they are capable of independent thought. They're not. And when we use this language that anthropomorphizes an AI or an algorithm, we're, we're going down that slippery slope of then saying, well, then robots will dominate the world and we're just going to be their pets. It, you know, you go from like zero to Terminator, like in an instant, it's really funny. And, and we're nowhere near getting there. How are you so sure of that? Because, uh, you know, you look at these things, you know, like this paper that came out of Deep Mind recently, where they're talking about uh, transfer learning uh, from game to game, and you can see this potentially being the n equals one. That if they figure out how to frame the problem correctly, 
they could induct upon that and get to something where oh you can transfer now you know oh, okay we figured out how to do transfer learning from pong to cruise in usa um you know maybe you go from there and you say okay now we we figured out how to do transfer learning from cruise in usa to cooking and then from cooking to uh driving real cars then from driving real cars to fighting in the army and I, I can imagine this going very fast and um i think this is this is why i don't fault people for starting to sound the alarm now and say let's start to think about this because if we don't think about it and we get it wrong then it could be the end of humanity the end of humanity will only happen in that scenario if human beings facilitate it so when this algorithm goes from learning you know pong to cruising usa to cooking to fighting there is usually a human component either introducing it or exposing it to something new. There's also the human component that could turn it off and stop it. Um, I think we forget that. Uh, there's there's still such a human, there's this, again, the, the human agency aspect to it. One thing I do agree with is that there is a huge psychological impact that it's already having on humanity, and it's understandable. Um, a more, maybe a less fatalistic way of thinking about it is, you know, a, your teammate um, you know, in the future for whatever job you have is likely to be an AI. And it will do things like suggest solutions to problems and create code or, you know, whatever you do. Um, and it will be a contributing member of your team. So right now, and I, whether or not it's been a conscious decision or not, all the AI we've created have been in servitude. So we have these bots that are only responsive if we ask it something. They're not proactive. We have things like Roombas and, you know, all of these things that assist us and they serve us. Like even Siri, right? She will only do something when I ask her to. She will not proactively tell me things. People get creeped out by that. So what happens when we have AI with that level of capability? Again, I don't think it's going to get to the point where your teammate AI is now trying to kill you. Um, I think that people will feel useless. So a good example that was coming out of the medical world, um, although I don't think it's as successful as it was being touted, was a, a, a vision recognition algorithm that could identify skin cancer better than the average doctor could. So let's say you're this doctor and you've gone through literally decades of schooling and tons of student loans to get to a point, And then now there's this algorithm and it will just say, better than you can. It'll tell you what your job is. At what point do you feel like you've lost control? That That's a very feasible future, uh, more feasible than, let's say, robots all, you know, killing us. Um, but, and that's almost a more dangerous future because as human beings, we value uh, feeling productive. We value contribution. Uh, you know, this doctor is probably very proud of the fact that they're a doctor and they cure people of cancer. Will they not feel like they're the one curing people if a robot is now telling them, that this person has cancer and that's the treatment you should give and here's how you should implement it, then you're the one in servitude and the machine is the one dictating. I think that that's a that's a very, very real consideration and understanding about humanity we have to make. I mean, I agree with you that the probability of the the dermatologist being obviated by technology, it's a higher probability occur, uh, future occurrence than the tail risk of Terminator. However, the downside weight of Terminator 
is potentially much higher than the downside risk of dermatologists being obviated. But we don't need to go down this. <laughs> we don't need to go down this rabbit hole <laughs> any further. Um, before you joined Accenture, you were teaching data science at Metis, and I think this is a little more tangible topic. What does a modern data science curriculum look like, and what were you teaching at Metis? So, for the audience who may not be familiar, Metis is a three-month data science boot camp. We have offices in our schools in New York, which is where we started, uh, San Francisco, Seattle is opening, and Chicago is now open. Um, and to answer your question, data science curriculum is very, very difficult to develop. We just went through a major overhaul um, during my last few months there. So there was a team. Uh, so it was, by the way, like the best job ever. Um, I love my job at Accenture. Don't get me wrong, but it was it was just a great job for somebody of a of a academic teaching mindset who wants to be given free reign to have fun in data science, um, which is why they're very. It's it's a very unique skill set to be a successful teacher there. So we used to teach six months out of the year. We did corporate consulting for three months, and then we had three months to pursue a passion project. So for some people, uh, their their corporate quarter is sometimes spent doing internal work. All that is to say we had a team of people who literally spent three months revamping and overhauling our entire curriculum. And this is with a curriculum that is roughly two years old and not static. It is a fluid curriculum. So if I'm, you know, if I'm an expert in, you know, um, so for example, when, when neural nets became big, right, they were not big when Metis first started, we had people, you know, uh, who we hired who were experts in neural nets and they created uh, curricula for us to teach. Even given that it is a, an ongoing process of developing, we still needed a team that took about three months to overhaul, standardize, and create everything. I think the teaching data science is a process of constant learning, not just for the students, but for the instructors. Um, it's it's important to learn the basics, and we have a lot of pre-work, and we spend the first few weeks um, very, very, uh, very careful to teach the basics that they need. And, you know, then it's it's a lot about evolving with what companies are using, what people are talking about. And even sometimes it's just a class-specific thing. You may have a class that really, really loves doing certain types of uh, algorithms more than others, and, and you have to do a lot of teaching on the fly. It is definitely not for the faint of heart. And when you're teaching, you have no life. I mean, for those six months that you teach, you are so dedicated to teaching. It's it's fabulous. If you love teaching like I do, it's it's great. It's really rewarding. And speaking of education, we have all of these alternative education models that are cropping up now. And I'm a really big fan of these different models, whether you're talking about a boot camp sort of approach like Metis or a, um, you know, approach like an online, you know, there's things like free code camp or other more, more, uh, uh, you know, paid opportunities for learning things like data science. There's data quest. Um, and then there's obviously classic university education, and I think some of these universities have started outreach programs where you can maybe take classes without maybe being a full-time student. What are these different opportunities, and how do you see them fitting together? What are the pros and cons of the different approaches of engineering slash data science education? 
So I love the fact that there's a lot of free and open coursework out there. That being said, I have met very, very few people in my life who have been able to leverage that, do all the curriculum, and make that into a job. It's unless they had prior experience either in engineering or stats that they've that they've used in pitching themselves as a data scientist. I think in the current market, it's and it's just it's just human nature. We're really bad at uh, like not having deadlines. So while all the Courseras and, and things like that are fabulous, um, it's very difficult to follow through. It's also very difficult for uh, and I know students. A lot of meta students actually, most of them have taken at least one of these online courses and then they come to Metis. Because you do your work in a bubble. You don't have a network. You still need to know other data scientists. You need to springboard ideas off of each other. The big value add or a big value add of Metis is, you know, our career support and the students you have around you. You'll often see students sort of go off into a corner and like talk about their projects and ideas and whiteboard and everybody contributes something that the other people wouldn't have thought. You can't really do that in a bubble. So what I love about this new education model is it starts to level the playing field but it is helpful to have that group of other data scientists or other new and young data scientists who are starting out with you. So you have a way to benchmark yourself and see if you're on the right path. Um, I think the traditional university model is seeing the same disruption that, and I keep using that word and I hate that word, but it is, it is the right word to use, uh, the same sort of upheaval that all industries are gonna see that you cannot just be static um, one reason I left academia was I was frustrated being in an ivory tower. I didn't want to just talk to other people who were just like me and come up with ideas that we all thought were fabulous and then never see them see the light of day, right? I, I wanted to actually make solutions and Silicon Valley is, is about problem solving. Um, so it's, so the bootcamp model is great because it, it fills this gap that traditional education doesn't always have and it's portfolio-based, project-based problem solving. Don't get me wrong, I think a traditional education is still valuable in many ways, um, but this is a really good boost for people trying to shift gears and come into the industry. So one thing that happens, um, and this is me putting my economist hat on because I, I was an economist for some years, um, one, one thing about having sort of a traditional structure to your uh, field is that these things are just signals. If you went to MIT, Stanford, Harvard, et cetera, or you know, RPI or whatever school you went to, these are just signals you're giving an employer. And these signals say, I, am, I was qualified to go to XYZ school and we value these signals as meaning something, right? Um, in data science, that's not necessarily the case. You can now come from all sorts of backgrounds. And what happens at, for employers, it's very, very difficult to parse out who would be a good data scientist. I am a perfect example. My background is in political science. Um, I may have gone to MIT for undergrad, but most of the work I've done has been in quantitative social science. Um, in, there are, are some who would look at my resume and just throw it in the garbage can because they're like, well, she doesn't know how to program or whatever, or have these certain perceptions because I don't have a pure engineering background. There are other people who thankfully um, see it as something different. And it just depends on the nature of the company and the job. And, and what I'm seeing being on the hiring end is that it's very, very difficult to parse out a good candidate because you don't have those traditional signals to fall back on. And, you know, totally different discussion of whether those signals are even valuable or <laughs> indicative of anything. Um, <laughs> 
Ramon, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. We touched on a wide array of things. I'm sure we could have talked for another hour or two. So thank you for coming on. <laughs> thank you for having me. Wow.